What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Disc Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all love and support, and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform, and make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Disc Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. This is Deep Dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Dr. White, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. I am doing well. Thanks for uh, having me here. Now, thank, thank you for being here. And uh, just to let y'all know, Dr. White came in expecting pizza, and he's from New Haven, Connecticut. Therefore, you know, they take their pizza very seriously there. Um, and, you know, we had a little, little quibble, you know, a little debate about these pizzas, what's going on. But I'm going to give a shout out to Tiffany Green. She told me, hands down, New Haven has the best pizza in the United States. Forbes also believes so, too. So I'm going to have to make my way up to New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, get some of that good old pizza. I would agree, 100%. (laughs) But I'm going to say for the record now, Nashville has the best pizza. So we're giving New Haven a run for their money now. Um. But uh, Dr. White is the uh, executive director for Metropolitan Development and Housing Agency, also known as MDHA. Um, And just to sum it up, housing. Um, But before we get into the housing stuff, I want to get into who you are, Dr. White, um, and kind of what led you to the path that you are now, um, what inspired that, who inspired that, and did you ever think that you would be in the position that you're in today? And so if you can give us a little background of like, you know, just your humble beginnings. That's a good question. I I think I've only been asked that twice in my entire life, what got me into housing. Uh, It was following my dad. And uh, my father uh, worked at the Chamber of Commerce in all places, Waterloo, Iowa. And as a vice president of the chamber, got the opportunity to build some affordable housing. So as a child, I got to see the impact of affordable housing. And when we moved to New Haven, Connecticut, He worked at the New Haven Housing Authority, it is now Elm City Communities, and he was there a couple of years and moved on to the State Housing Finance Agency. And I guess I was uh, one of my two brothers that got the bug and got into affordable housing and have been in it for over 25 years. Uh, Just just interesting to try to provide for those most in need in the community. It's very difficult to do. I, I, I often say at public venues, it ain't for the faint of heart trying mm-hmm. to build affordable housing. It is really hard. Wow. And so what were some of the gems that your dad maybe, you know, kind of gave you when he also realized that this is something that you wanted to get into? Well, you know, it, I, I'll say both. So my, my mom and dad, my okay. mom was a, a bigger supporter than my dad. My dad actually, once I started working at the New Haven Housing Authority, he told me, get out of there and go to the State Housing Finance Authority. There's <laughs> nothing good going to happen to you staying in low-income housing and working at those housing authorities in his mind. Now, my mom understood kind of the, the give back and okay. help. And uh, her persuasion for me was, if that's your passion, you need to follow your passion. Mm. And you're going to work a lifetime and you might as well enjoy what you do. And if you can give back at what you do, that's a career you want to seek. Don't listen to your father. Uh, his experience was different than yours. Mm-hmm. So I think I think part of that, Jim, was just seeing it, living mm-hmm. in New Haven, seeing the level of affordable housing that was there it was in pretty bad shape. And then being able to work at an agency to actually work with families to move them up and out of affordable housing uh, inspired me as kept me going in a, in my career um 
what what type of how would you describe your personal housing upbringing um growing up um in a little bit in Iowa and then majority in New Haven so I'll talk a little bit about New Haven and not so much in Iowa I was okay. young when we moved from Iowa okay uh there are African-Americans in Iowa. I'm often asked, <laughs> if you come from Iowa, it's like Utah. Are there African-Americans in, in Iowa? Yeah, we grew up in Waterloo. Okay. And Waterloo is much like Gary, Indiana. And when you think about Gary, industrial, mm -hmm. Waterloo, industrial, uh, and moved to New Haven. Uh, Two-parent household. Uh, was fortunate that my late uh, grandmother lived with us as well. She moved from Iowa when we moved in the 70s. So I actually grew up with my mother and father in the house every day. Uh, grandmother there to help raise me and my two brothers, kind of the village approach. Okay. So the level of wisdom uh, and redirect that my brothers and I got is invaluable to who we are today. It helped build our character. Having our dad home every night, he'd go to work, come home, be in the living room. If you had conversations, we would literally eat at the table at least twice a week as a family. Mm -hmm. uh, not not necessarily the Cosbys, but as a family. Right. And you know, we grew up middle class uh, in New Haven. Uh, went to public school. Uh, went to public uh, colleges. So, really enjoyed uh, uh, growing up and and striving with my two brothers, one older and one younger and having the ability to have a grandmother in the house to provide a level of wisdom that most uh, generations don't get. Right. So we have something in common. We're both middle childs. So I have an okay. older brother and a younger brother, and, you know, we're the best, you know. <laughs> middle, middle kids are the best. You know, let's call it what it is. Let's <laughs> call it what it is. So growing up in that household, growing up in a, in a, in a, uh, in a black household at that, um, black people, black folks in this nation and housing have a, a peculiar relationship um, when it comes to housing and the lack thereof to affordable housing, redlining, um, structural policies rooted in discrimination that prevented black folks from getting housing and building generational wealth uh, within housing. With your father being in that sector, did that ever come up um, before you actually, you know, got into the work? Did that ever come up? Did, were those discussions ever talked about? Or did you just visually see it growing up in New Haven and ask those questions like, hey, like, why are, there, are these disparities happening here um, in this city that I live so in? That, so that's a great question. Uh, great question. It did not come up in our okay. household. We were fortunate. We were one of three families that lived in a majority Jewish neighborhood oh. in New Haven, Connecticut, wow. which, which, which is something in itself. Right. Back in the 70s, when we moved into the home that my parents still own, the differential is every neighbor in that community came and visited the house and brought cakes. And that's when communities were communities, when right. people would walk up. We weren't judged by, obviously, the color of our skin, being one of three African-American families in this entire Jewish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But the disparities in New Haven are pretty stark. So you have Yale University with great wealth, and you have low-income housing that are, is throughout New Haven, Connecticut, mm -hmm. with a city of about 130,000 people. So I first encountered it as I ventured out in high school and had friends that lived in low-income housing and would go to their homes and see how they lived, played on a football team, so was one of the captains of the team, and often asked about the coach to be a leader to others that were in uh, single-family households. Mm -hmm. um, 
first got into redlining when I was at the New Haven Housing Authority. So I worked at the New Haven Housing Authority for about six years and saw the impact of redlining and low-income housing, the, the, the need uh, for the products and what, what, how distribution and wealth is distributed. Mm -hmm. um, growing up middle class uh, is different than growing up if you're low income, but those families that we knew that were low income, uh, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. And I think part of, as I got older and more and more involved in low-income housing and the industry, it became more of uh, defining me to fight harder to understand it. And clearly now as a husband and as a father, uh, I echo that to my children about how, how to build wealth. And, right. and, and becoming a homeowner becomes a flagship, and it's not that far out of reach now with rising cost and interest mm -hmm. rates, it makes it a little challenging. Right. Um, but New Haven is a interesting model when you have the wealth of a university the size of BL, and you've got some of the highest poverty in the state is right in New Haven, Connecticut. Wow. And so as I was doing um, <clears throat> my, my, my super top secret research on you, trying to find all your, you know, your secrets, um, you have a very, I think, peculiar background in working in cities that Nashville is it's tried to model after in some of the meetings that I've been in, especially with economic development. Um, and that is Atlanta, and then that is Charlotte, um, specifically. Um, Nashville is, is, is just growing at a rapid pace. And I think at one point in time, you know, 100 people a day were moving here. I don't know if that just went up or if stayed the same even through a pandemic. Um, what do you see at kind of the notable differences or similarities between working in cities like Atlanta and Charlotte compared to Nashville at the moment? So, you know, one of the positives in Nashville is it's growing, right? What, what you don't want from an economic development standpoint is a city like the old Rust Belt cities that aren't growing, people aren't coming to, mm -hmm. they're moving away from. So, so the economy's growing. Um, some of the similarities are there, there are, you know, larger pockets of immigrants that are in all three of those jurisdictions. Uh, embracing those cultures become important for Nashville moving forward. I think Atlanta and Charlotte are slightly ahead as it relates to uh, transit. So when you think about mm -hmm. moving people, and you know this, whenever you get on 24 or 40 or 65, you know, at any given time, it could be a little bit of a parking lot, uh, right. and you kind of sit there going, why? Well, it's pretty clear mm -hmm. that the grid system uh, uh, for the highway is used by all of us local versus used by visitors. Right. In Charlotte, they did do the people moving piece, so uh, transportation becomes a big piece. Atlanta has its, although when you go to Atlanta, and I lived there on two different occasions, 285 is a bear uh, in itself that you mm. could spend a long time on. So I think those are, are kind of the similarities. I think both of those cities has, have gone through uh, massive growth. I think Charlotte has done a little better job on the affordability piece as it looks at transit-oriented developments than Atlanta, mm -hmm. particularly because of their light rail and how they were able to build out on the light rail side. Uh, Atlanta's trying with the Beltline. It hasn't quite got there. Um, MARTA's interesting, but MARTA will never get the referendum. They've been trying for 20-plus years right. to expand it. And I think, you know, for me, those are, are the similarities. I would point out one thing when I'm asked that question. The major difference I see in Nashville is Nashville is welcoming. Okay. And Atlanta has a welcoming, so does Charlotte, but Nashville is welcoming. 
Right. And there's a different level of welcoming as I entered this community than what I experienced both in Charlotte and Atlanta, not to disparage either of those great cities, mm-hmm. but there's a different welcome that Nashville has for its residents versus those cities. Well, yeah, you know, we can just say it right now. Nashville is better than Charlotte and Atlanta. <laughs> you know, Dr. White might not say it. I'm going to go ahead and say it, you know. <laughs> but, no, um, but no, that's, th- thanks for to breaking that down as somebody, you know, that has insight specifically on those two cities in Nashville um, and just the growth and, you know, a lot like a lot of meetings I've been in, just like all, those two cities always come up or like what do we should be doing, what cities should we be looking at? And those two cities always come up. Now I want to kind of get into like the meat and potatoes of uh, MDHA. Um, can you break down for us, for those who might not know, um, what MDHA does, what they don't do, um, and what, is it, what does it mean to community here in Nashville and the services that you all provide? So, you know, MDHA has been in existence since 1938. So being the sixth executive director, it's an honor to, to be here, and particularly being the first executive director of color is important right. at, this, at this time. So we are kind of three different companies under one roof, if you think about it. So we're a housing authority on one roof where we have a portfolio that we call RAD. It used to be the old public housing that was converted to RAD. So we provide six-plus thousand affordable units. Uh, in Nashville, we have our Section 8 program, which we call rental assistance. We have over 7,000 vouchers in that program. Uh, and then we have some various HUD-related programs that kind of center around those, the old Ross and those type of programs. That's core of that business. We're also, we administer the community planning funding for metro government. So okay. we do home, CDBG, ESG, HOPWA. Uh, and we do that in a community way, so, so that, that's a separate business unit. We're also uh, under our urban uh, development, we're the uh, redevelopment district. So there's 11 redevelopment districts uh, in Nashville that we uh, administer. Out of those redevelopment districts, uh, we do a number of things. TIF is one of the tools that uh, we're hoping to use uh, with redevelopment, but we also, when someone applies for a tax credit, uh, and they apply to us, they can get a pilot through okay. our urban development. So it's seemingly three companies. So we, we provide housing for almost 30,000 Nashville residents. Wow. Um, we have a staff of close to 350 employees and kind of three niche businesses under one corporate umbrella is kind of how I define it when I'm speaking about it now. We do have other programs that are with, embedded in those units or outside of those units. Uh, as well, but that simplistically is who we are and what we do. How does MDHA impact the Nashville housing crisis? Whether that is by developing more affordable housing units, um, whether that is just one piece, right, of Mm -hmm. trying to combat the crisis, can you speak a little bit on that and the impact that MDHA has on, you know, the units that that we need? And if I if I read correctly, um, I think we need like thirty thousand something units by twenty thirty, um, in order to 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 combat, put a band aid something to to address the issue. Right. Um, and correct my stats if I'm wrong. So but. so so the number 
you know what I find interesting is it 30, 40, 50,000? <laughs> it, it's a lot of units, right? right? And, and if you go back in history uh, and you look at it, you know, when the economy goes bad, you kind of take your eye off of affordable housing because that mm -hmm. priority doesn't, isn't the biggest priority, right? And right. a lot of cities did that. And Nashville is no different. So when you think about how we're addressing affordability and, and the affordable crisis, I look at it in a number of different ways. One, we have to be more nimble and more efficient at building affordable units. So we're doing that right now at Casey, where we're under development of a 96-unit um, development at Casey. We've also put in a 9% tax credit application for another 107 units at 5th and uh, Summer, right down across from the sheriff's office. Uh, come January, February, we were looking to put in two more tax credit applications for a total of another 203 units. So if you think about it, I've been here nine months and we're trying to literally get over 400 units under construction in 2023, something this agency hasn't probably done since going back to the 30s and 40s and 50s wow. when all of it was built. So, so one, we've got we've to mobilize right. and, and do that. Two, we can't be afraid because the numbers are too daunting. I'm often told when we look at our envision plans, they're, they're big numbers. Right. And what I tell folks, it's really commas and decimal points. And depending how you move them will depend on what we do. Mm -hmm. And we have to move forward. So I think a big part of what we have to do is build units. We've got to start serving our residents. And by serving, we're looking to create a human services department. Mm -hmm. Part of combating 30,000, 40, or 50,000 units is we've got to move people through the housing continuum, too. Right. So when I say housing continuum, I'm not saying move them up and completely out. Literally moving someone from a subsidized unit to a non-subsidized unit. So you can mm -hmm. go from a subsidized unit that we have, which could be a RAD or project-based, to a tax credit unit. That frees up a subsidized unit. So if we provide services to help families... Uh, and engage them in the economic prosperity piece, we could move them not out of their community, because I think that's wrong. I, right. think, I think we've all learned when we say success is moving into your own house when you move up and out of your neighborhood. But wait a minute, I grew up in that neighborhood. Right. So if we're rebuilding the neighborhood, then we need those residents to be, uh, have equity in that neighborhood. Therefore, you're, we're keeping you within the neighborhood, but you're going to move to a higher level. So that'll help. Right. Lastly, I think MDHA has to be a thought leader, not just in Nashville, but regional and national. And by that, I mean we have to advocate for resources that are coming to Nashville, whether they're at the federal or state level, that benefit uh, families of Nashville so we can grow and prosper the way that we need. To do that, we've got to be involved with associations. We've got to be out there talking. Mm -hmm. Your show is a good is a good place to park that to kind of right. say how do we really talk about this issue well it does require some resources right and we've got to make sure Nashville's getting its fair share from the feds in the state to grow the way that it needs to that's kind of how Charlotte and Atlanta grew now Atlanta because of the airport became an economic engine if you look at the history uh, from 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 a mayor mayors ago that's how they did their major growth was through the resources of that huge mm -hmm. airport. Well, you know, um, because Nashville is, you know, a blue dot in the red state, the state, you know, really, you know, doesn't, you know, give Nashville <laughs> what we need um, as we as we see it now with like the educational situation that's going on where, you know, we're going to be fitting the bill, it seems like, going forward for what we need educationally. Hopefully that doesn't happen in the housing, but, you know, that's that's 
that's what happens, I guess, when you are a very progressive city and then maybe very more majority converted, uh, conservative state like Tennessee. But I do want to touch on later on, but I'm going to say it out loud so you can kind of be thinking about it. Um, I do want, because we have the mayoral race coming up mm-hmm. in 2023. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on um, what does Nashville's mayor need to be thinking about when it comes to housing for us to be able to address the things that we know that we're facing in housing and being the executive director of MDHA, I think um, your thought on that is very important. Um, so I, I want to just put that out there. But also you said something else that is really interesting. Growing up in a low social social economic area myself, you know, when I when I when I um, when I had family members that lived in public housing, which we will refer to like the projects, the bricks. Um, and, you know, we will always see this, you know, kind of cycle like this generational mm-hmm. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. just not just just this is they just there, you know, Um over time, but you said something about that elevating out of that, uh, which I haven't heard many people speak on and did not know that there were services and programs that um, families have access to in order to get that support. If you know, of course, they have to want it, right? They have to they have to willingly want to get out of the current you know house situation and elevate and you know continue on but that's good for you to hear and know that those services are provided to our families here in nashville that are in subsidized housing so so we have service providers that are providing it uh we used to provide direct services uh at mdha we we have some still what i'm talking about is unleashing a human services department and focusing exactly what you said Mm -hmm. on those families that uh, are looking to move uh, upward and onward or looking for opportunity now part of that is looking at the economics and when you look at the economics of mdha we're a 150 million dollar annual business Uh, and i'm going to repeat that because some folks don't get that we're a 150 million dollar annual business out of that we're spending 30 40 50 percent local Mm. That, that's a pretty big spend. Yeah. How do we now get those residents of our legacy sites, as I call them, the Casey's, the uh, J.C. Napier, the the Sudicums, Andrew the, Jackson, Andrew Jackson, the yeah. Cumberland, Cheatham, Cheatham? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do we get them involved in the economics? Well, we've got to design programs that are generated for them. We've got to mm. get them to the table. We can't be shy. Uh, I'm one that you just don't throw it up against the wall. You got to try it. And if it doesn't right. work, you try something else, but you don't stop trying. Right. Um, and then I think we have an opportunity because there's a generation that lives, lives in our portfolio. And this is one of the things that drives me when I see little girls and little boys in our portfolio. How do we get them operationalized so that they don't need what we provide? Mm. Think, about, think about it like this. I would love to put myself out of business right right think about me saying a statement where we're closing because we've provided for everyone in our community now the poor will always be among us it's in the bible right Right. so we know that however if our aspiration is we're going to provide so much that there's a generation we can impact and even if it's by a percentage Mm -hmm. that won't need affordable housing because they have opportunities to go to college they have opportunities to go to trade school they are entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. but when they get out of high school they can do all kind of things right well let's open up those opportunities right when, when i grew up 
My dad would say, it's called hope, son. Mm. You have to hope for something. Right. And you've got to want it more than I want it, or you're never going to obtain it. Right. That's interesting that you brought that up, <clears throat> because um, a lot of times we, we ignore um, the resources that could be the preventative resources, right? If, if kids and families had this, they wouldn't probably be in that situation. And that's and, and so that's that's great to hear you being that thought provoked of about what you all can do to play a part in those resources at the beginning. And so you're not waiting until they are already in public housing, but hey, let's let's get you before you end up or may have to use this service, which we don't want you to have to use, you know, right? And so um are those are those programs that you all are already you know, thinking about working with other community organizations uh, to implement, or is that at the beginning stages? What, what are those programs so, at now? So those are at the beginning of stages. Okay. A lot, a lot of this is in my in my head. I, okay. I'm like the mad scientist <laughs> when I think through things like this. We right. have some existing uh, family self sufficiency programs. Okay, we do do on a smaller scale home ownership programs, um, uh, rehab programs for owner occupied. Uh, what I'm looking at is being more intentional. Okay. How, how, how do we address a generation, as you, you, you talked right. about it, so when you come over to Casey Place and you mm -hmm. see our portfolio, not the new, the old, and mm -hmm. you say, how do we address this? Right. How do we address it in a uh, way that impacts the end user? Right. And it's the customer focus. Right. It's, it's really going back to customer service 101 and saying, why don't we ask the end user versus me telling them what we're going to do? Okay, you brought up you brought up some 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 things that I I had to jot down, um, especially as Nashville is growing around affordable housing, um, and so I, I want to get into gentrification. Okay, um, some people may not even want affordable housing next to their community. Some people say, "Hey, I, it may bring down the property value of my home or my community." Um, some people will say, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a con to a affordable housing. And as national is growing and we're seeing gentrification happen rapidly, um, and historically black areas specifically, um, how does MDHA play a part in that where you have areas like Cheatham, Andrew Jackson, um, there are rampant gentrification happening all over those communities. Germantown, right down the street from, mm -hmm. from Cheatham. Mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson, you know, all of these things are proximity to downtown, which a lot of people you know, want real estate in. How does MDHA respond to that um, and, and pivot around those things when it comes to you know, affordable housing and, and, and making it accessible to those that need it most? So that, that's a good question. You know, gentrification is, is economics 101 mm -hmm. uh, at its best. I think Cheatham Place is a great example uh, of that. So one of the ways that, that we address is we had a, a training facility that sat uh, near Cheatham Place that was damaged by a couple of storms. And that facility was torn down. And in its place is 100 units that are, uh, have been built. And we did a ribbon cutting a month or so ago um, at Randy Rogers. And one of the ways to combat it is us looking at our land use. And as we look to rebuild those sites like Cheatham, 
increasing the density on that site. So one of the things I look at is, you know, part of it is saying if we've got X number of units, how do we build back what we have plus maybe 5% more affordable units? Those affordable are generally serving families under 80%, but our niche is really 30 to 60% of AMI is who we're serving. So, you know, Germantown, great view. Uh, Randy Rogers has a great view of the downtown horizon. But again, we've, we've generated 100 units over there, 50 of which are uh, low-income units uh, that we have. We're going to have 50 vacancies at Cheatham Place that we'll pu pull from our waiting list. So we created 50 affordable new mm -hmm. units over there. I think every neighborhood is different. And uh, NIMBYism is, is nothing new, right. right? Gentrification is certainly nothing new. I think part of what we're looking at is how we rebuild those legacy sites and we impact those sites by maintaining, one, the number plus a percentage above that for affordability, because if we don't do it, who will? Right. We're, we're the leading advocate to do that. Two, we've got to then look at the land use. So when you look at a site like Casey that sits on 63 acres of land mm -hmm. uh, that had 716 total units, you know, we're looking to put back 2,400 units on that site. So there'll be opportunities for those families that are 80% and below to live on that site. There'll be an additional uh, number of units that are workforce that will be able to move some families through programming to those units to be in that neighborhood. So I think one, we're trying to address it by being um, mindful of the communities that we have mm -hmm. and rebuild those communities, increasing the density on those communities so that we can have a percentage higher than what we, we started with. Uh, and then lastly, we're, we look at land use as well. We look at the borders of our sites. And when there's opportunities for us to have land, there's a few that we do. We have bought land in the past, not mm -hmm. since I've been here, but in the past to kind of protect <clears throat> those. So. I think, you know, our biggest driver is being one of the largest affordable housing providers in Nashville. So that is core to who we are and what we do. I want to bring up safety. Mm -hmm. This is another thing that comes up around um, public housing. Um, we have an organization here that does great work, Gideon's Army. Um, in the Cumberland View, also known as Dodd City. Um, <clears throat> what role does MDHA plays in preserving safety for communities and areas when we think about public housing projects and bricks? There's a narrative that there's always a lot of violence that happens that goes on, and there's just a lot of criminal activity one would think to believe, depending you know if you ever lived in those areas or not, right? Um, propaganda would have you to believe. Media would have you to believe. Um, what role does MDHA play in that safety um, in those areas um, where, you know, things can happen? Um, because of, you know, the low-income areas that, uh, well, it's just a fact. When you have these low-income areas where there's not a lot of resources around, where there's a apartheid of, of food, you know, no grocery stores, no resources, these things. You know, crime tends to happen more there. Um, what role does MDHA play in preserving people's safety in those affordable housing units? So I'm going to start with a, a word you chose, mm -hmm. um, perception. Right. 
So the perception is that the sites that we have have a higher statistical crime rate. So yeah, um, there's crime, right. but but the majority of crime that's uh, perpetrated on our properties are not by our families. So so we know that nationally. There's studies that the Harvard uh, University has done to kind of prove that. So okay. so so you said perception. It right. is perception. Yeah yeah yeah. <clears throat> to a degree, you talked a little bit about food deserts, uh, which gets back to mm -hmm. community. You know, it's kind of the church, it's the grocery store, it's the services in the community mm -hmm. that are lacking. Uh, the role that MDHA plays is we're a facilitator. So a couple of things that we do do uh, surrounding crime. So we are in partnership with the police department here. Uh, we actually directly fund some officers through a task force that we work with them uh, in partnership. I believe that it's not just the police department that's the partnership. I believe that it's also the other side with social service programs. So last year, uh, Mayor Cooper uh, put together a group in the mayor's office that uh, funded uh, Napier and Sudicum for some outreach works with community providers, about $300,000 of ARP money. We're looking to take that same type of approach through the mayor's office and do that at three more sites okay. through future ARP money where we would facilitate with those community groups that are in and around those sites uh, those approaches. We also, with our human services programming, we want to make sure we're doing diversion programs on the human services side to help address those issues. Idle minds, you, you know, you have nothing to do, long, hot summer. Right. We're also looking to partner with the police department on the police athletic. Like they just oh, got the 501 mm -hmm. C3. They're doing boxing now. We're looking to partner with them on that. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a level of policing and community policing and services that have to come together. Uh, the other thing that we're looking to do is, is uh, work with uh, the juvenile justice system. Okay. So I believe there is no throwaway kit. Let right. me say that twice. There are no throwaway kids. Right. So one of the things we're looking to do is on a program side, as the uh, juvenile justice system looks at their new campus, how MDHA can fit in with school systems, police department, on the programming side. Okay. Just because you uh, ended up in the system doesn't mean you stay in the system. Right. So, so we do have a role to play uh, as a greater partner in those mm -hmm. uh, locations. I think it starts with service. I think it right. starts with engagement. I think it starts back to the basics. It's, it's the two things that I pulled out that you said, the, the perception mm -hmm. and, you know, the food deserts. Right. So, so when you have communities like that, you have that. Now, when you think about Cumberland, you've got Kroger's right next to, Cum, uh, not Cumberland, um, Cheatham Place. You've right. got Kroger's right next to it. Right. So you don't, have, yep. you, you, you don't have the food desert, right. but you certainly could use some, we could use some services over there. Right. And there are a number of, of organizations we're going to look to this year to kind of put together a, a list of those organizations with the mayor's office and, and work with those groups. So, you know, we're, we're I think that there's a balance level. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we work directly through Chief Drake uh, in terms of policing. Um, <clears throat> and I think we've got to try some, some different things to get the youth engaged. Do, do you see um, the benefits uh, of having um, an organization like a Gideon's Army that focus heavily in, like, on violence interruption um, because you have community members, a part of that organization that grew up in these particular um, housing communities do you see do you see that as a benefit to work with organizations like those? I know there's several others, Black National Assembly, 
um, there's Path, um, uh, there's uh, you got NOAA, you have these other community organizations that focus around how housing, but also focus around violence interruption. Do you, do you see that there's a partnership that can be made, should be made, benefits of working with organizations like that as well? Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> I think that there's a place for every organization. Okay. I'm not so, so sure about uh, Gideon's Army in terms of how they approach it. Right. I'm familiar with NOAA and what they do. Have actually okay. have two board members on my board of commissioners that are on NOAA's okay. board. So we do work with them. Uh, I'd like to re-engage the Urban League. When I grew up, the Urban League played a much more robust facilitating role to, to, to kind of get the community together. So I do think there's a, a number of groups. <clears throat> Being a disruptor, or are we trying to engage people in gainful employment, get them part of the economic prosperity in partnership with a chief of police that is a community-minded chief, right. not, not just we're going to lock people up. He's right. community-minded. Right. I, I, I'm working with Chief Drake on that provision with right. us. Uh, and then I think it's, it's how do we unleash the economic wealth mm -hmm. for a number of people? If you're doing those, I just haven't figured out yet how the disruptor piece works if we're doing all those things up front. Okay. Um, there's another, um, narrative, um, that's, that's in our community around public housing, um, that, that specifically kind of disproportionately affects black families. And it's this, this narrative that, um, hey, if you are a black woman or a woman in general, um, you cannot have a man in the household in public housing. That is one of the qualifications. That is one of the, the thresholds that you must meet. Um, is that true for all of public housing? Um, is it not? Help us figure this out because it's been talked about a lot around housing and it's pretty much like, hey, you're getting paid to not have the father or a man in the household. No, it's not true. Okay. So, so break, break this down for us, Dr. White. <laughs> Have you heard this yourself, though? Is this something well, that you, you, that you, you heard? Know, you, or? So, so being in this as long as I have, okay. it, it, it is something that, that I've heard. Okay. I mean, we, we actually, when I worked in Meriden, Connecticut, I can tell you factually, if you were in a uh, two-partner relationship, you could sign the other partner on the lease. When I was in Saginaw, Michigan, uh, if you were in a in a relationship, you could be added to the lease. Okay. And we supported two uh, family member leases. So, okay. So, uh, no. I, okay. I, I think that gets back to kind of what we talked about with what the perception is. Okay. And it really gets back to breaking down the black family. So when you think about breaking down the black family, you're talking mass incarcerations and things like that that tipped the black family. Right. Um, but that is not what we do at MDHA. We, we, we support uh, uh, the men that are around. Uh, now, some of them may not be on the lease for various reasons, and I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. Right. Um, but we support uh, the nuclear family being on the lease. Okay, perfect. Um, so getting into qualifications a little bit deeper, um, there's always a massive waiting list, 
right? Yes. yes. <laughs> Here in Nashville. Yes. Um, Atlanta, Charlotte. So, right. <laughs> it's, yes. all, it's always a massive <clears throat> waiting list, and so it's a it's a huge need that we yes. know. Um, how do you, how do you all deal with that need and break it down to like the the ratio and why there's always you know a list and kind of what you all are just dealing with on the operational level um, that creates these you know hey we have you know twenty twenty thousand families but we only have three units available therefore hey you know we're only go we're only gonna get down to nineteen thousand nine hundred and ninety eight you know um, how does that work so 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 you you put it better than I would have <laughs> in this in this segment. What what I would say is this. So it's a it's a economics. Okay. So it's it's the amount of funding we get for the programs. So if you think about it in round numbers, let's say that we have six thousand uh, affordable units okay. in play. We maintain ninety seven percent occupancy. Okay. Okay. We maintain that. Right. At all times. At all times. Year round. We're going to maintain it. Right. So if you're at ninety seven percent occupied and you have enough funding for 6,000 static units, you're not growing or, or, or missing, and you're always at 97%, there's a small percentage of units that flip. Each of our sites have site-based waiting lists. Okay. Okay? So when you think about a place like, I want to keep talking about um, Cheatham Place. So okay. when you think about Cheatham Place, if we have three vacancies and we open the waiting list, well, the waiting list is because it's been there for two or three years, so we'll open it, we purge it, and then we have a waiting list. We'll get five, six, seven hundred people for those three units. Mm. Families aren't moving out as quickly as they used to, moving them through that housing continuum as the way it was designed. Therefore, we just don't have enough resources to go beyond the 6,000 units. Now, I, I would be glad if the federal government, and I'm Put a, put a little ad out there, wants to fund us for another 1,000 units that mm -hmm. we could actually build and, and maintain. Even with that, we're still going to have that bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is, is addressing it that you can't build your way alone out of the affordable housing crisis. You have to have a level of services. You have to move people, you know, at different step levels through the housing continuum to free up those units. And then you have to be in, in, you have to be a little uh, inventive. So if I'm only getting enough subsidy to support, let's just say the six thousand units, I may have a couple of thousand people, five, six, seven, eight thousand people on the waiting list. They're literally waiting year over year for the movement by those sites because I just don't have enough. And unfortunately, the federal government uh, housing is not at the highest level, as I'm sure you know, of their priorities for funding. We have not seen historic numbers in terms of our subsidies and how we would fund more units. So that, in a nutshell, is how we're, we, we do what we do. And so you, um, I'm glad you brought up state because I want to get into some housing policy and get your thoughts. Um, I was looking at, I was doing, again, my super duper secret research on you. And you, um, you was you was doing a talk, and you you called out the policies in the '60s and '70s and the '80s, and how you know it just it failed us, you know it it just failed us. It wasn't done right, and um, being able to give us the affordable housing and the housing healthy housing that we needed uh, for our communities. Um, what needs to happen on a policy level? Um, and I want to start state, state, local. Mm -hmm. um, for us to be able to combat um, the housing crisis that we have. Um, 
and also, you know, um, how can we combat the historical structural racism um, in housing policy uh, that has existed in this country as well? So I, I think there's a couple of things. So when I talk about the, the, the policy, federal policy has failed us, it has in a way when you think about the way it's designed. Mm -hmm. So for our portfolio, 6,000 units, we tell families that you're going to pay 30% of your gross adjusted income. Every time your income goes up, you pay 30%. Now, when you get a fixed mortgage, you don't pay more. You don't right. pay less. You pay the fixed rate for 30 years. Your income goes up. You have more d disposable income right. in a mortgage situation. In affordable housing, that doesn't happen. Right. So I'm mentally telling you, every time you make more money, I'm going to want more money towards your rent. Now, there's a reason for that, because then you reduce the level of subsidy for that unit. But what you're telling that person is, is, is it really valuable for me to, one, report it, two, to make more income, because when I do, you're going to want more of it. So I'm not sure that that policy, when it was written, was really ferreted out. It was really about reducing uh, the person's dependency on the subsidy mm -hmm. so that they paid more. But there was no carrot to that. Right. The other piece is, as long as you abide by the rules, you have housing. Right. So if I lose my income, I still have housing. Well, in a mortgage situation, we know if I lose my job, I got to go get another job so I can maintain my housing. So I think those type of policies didn't have the carrot in there to help those families continue to strive upward in the economic trend and uh, move forward. So, right. so I do think from a federal state level, there's got to be some ways to incentivize families to move through that continuum. Now, I don't expect a person at 30% of AMI within a year is going to be a homeowner, particularly with the prices in uh, Davidson County right now. Right. However we could move them from a subsidized unit to a tax credit unit in a time period if they're given an opportunity. Then they're at that kind of fixed rate where they're not paying that scale. So when I go make another $5 an hour in the job that I'm working, it's not all going to my rent. Right. So that's one. Um, I think on the race racist side, I think, you know, at MDHA, like most housing authorities, it started in the 30s and 40s in this country, and you can go anywhere in the country, and it right. doesn't have to be here. You can look at Atlanta, you can look at Charlotte, Philadelphia, up there in New Haven. It was all segregated housing. Right. It didn't matter whether you were in the deep south or up north. It was designed that way. Right. Okay? That, that's factual. I think here what we've done is we're working to integrate, as we look at a mixed uh, income model, to integrate the population better so that we're not building uh, African-American or Caucasian-only housing, which was part of the way housing was built in the 30s and 40s right. here in Nashville, in Philadelphia. You go to any city, it's, any, not, any hard city, to, yeah. it, it's not hard to pick it out. Right. Now, I think part of combating that is figuring out, and I keep getting back to the economics for families, how do we get them to be part of the economy Right. and be part of the windfall as we start rebuilding these sites, as there's job creations at those sites, as we have job training programs, as MDHA continues to partner and say there's some slots and you can go to this program for free, we can help you with this, we understand daycare is a challenge. I think there's opportunities for families here in Nashville to be part of that prosperity. Now, 
we, by law, and you know this from your research because uh, you keep looking, <laughs> looking at the laptop to pull I, the research. I, I'm pulling that so, research. So, so, so you know we don't discriminate in terms of by all the laws and federal regulations that right. we do. Uh, we literally now have a portfolio over at Casey where we've built back about 500 of the units, about 25% of Casey's been built out. Uh, that is very um, uh, balanced in terms of folks that live there. Right. I think part of that uh, you'll see cascaded in Randy Rogers as we continue to do mixed income communities, you will see a more diverse uh, portfolio uh, where we have. And clearly, when you talk about, we talked about Cheatham and its proximity, I mean, uh, Casey has a great proximity right across the highway. You've got the stadium, you've got right. the downtown area. So we have some properties in some pretty nice locations in Nashville. Um, is is there any is there ever any pushback on that mixed income housing that you receive from from communities that may not want um, affordable housing units next to their unit next to their housing? So I in nine months have not had any okay. directly. Now okay. that doesn't mean that it's not there. Let, right. I'm going to be realistic. So right. doing this as long as I have in all the cities that I've been in. Uh, there's always a pushback. Uh, part of that is education, right? So, so we've got to educate people that when we rebuild the portfolio, and it's like you talked about with the crime, right. is it fact or is it is perception. it fiction? Yeah. yeah, is it the perception? So when you pull those crime stats and you start saying, well, this is where we were when we start rebuilding that mixed mm -hmm. income community, here's where the stats kind of fell. Right. And here's what we're doing to further that. So I, I haven't, in my short nine months, uh, had it here. I have had it in other major cities. And it's not necessarily the biggest issue. It's really educating and saying, well, first of all, the site's there. Right. And if we rebuild it, and if you're putting you know, back what was there, but you're now putting some market rate and some workforce there as well, uh, you're rebuilding that entire community right. to, to be better than what it was. And so um, as we as we close, Dr. White, um, I want to go back um, into the mayoral race. It's coming up in 2023. Um, and of course, housing is going to be um, a big topic um, when uh, the mayoral candidates sit down and do the panels and forms and stuff. I'm pretty sure they're going to have some type of... Um, housing proposal, what they feel how Nashville should be moving to address the housing affordability um, here um, in Davis County, Greater Nashville. Um, what do you believe um, the next mayor going into 2023, whether it's the incumbent or a new mayor, um, should have on their mind when they're thinking about housing um, for Nashville um, in the, for the next four years of their term? So that's a great question, Jerome. Um, one, first and foremost, so MDHA is neutral. We, we have to be because of mm -hmm. the federal funding that we receive, and we get some state money as well through tax credits, so we've got to be pretty neutral as it relates right. to campaigns and, and that. Right. I think as everyone talks about affordable housing, uh, obviously it's a, it's a big lift. I often just say housing. Housing is a right. right. And so when you say affordable, what is affordable to you and I is not affordable to someone else. You've got to get away from 
talking about AMI and 80% of 70,000 and this and the numbers. It's right. what's affordable relative. Mm -hmm. I often look at it in, in different bite sizes. I, I think about my three oldest children that are um, in their 20s. They can't afford market rate housing in Nashville, Atlanta, Charlotte. I have a daughter at UC Davis. California is very expensive. Right. And it, it, it's just not affordable. So I think for uh, the current mayor who is investing the highest level in a long time in, in housing, not just affordable, but housing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a consistent investment in housing, and you can't take your eye off of it. It is one of those things that will creep up on you that if you stop investing in housing, you start losing track. That's how you get to 30, 40, 50,000 units. It's no different than mm -hmm. neighborhoods being built and not putting sidewalks in the neighborhoods. All of a sudden, you, you, you wind up walking down the street saying, well, where are all the sidewalks? Well, right. we stop investing in them. Right. So I think it's critically important to keep that investment in front of people, that that investment is important to the community. It's not just the affordable piece. It's housing in Nashville. When you think about the economic boom in Nashville and you think about the Oracles and the Amazons fully staffing up, where are all those families going to live? Where's their support staff going to live? Because it's expensive to live in Davidson County. Right. I think it's a housing issue. So I think it's making sure that the candidates think about a long-term investment in housing beyond their initial term or terms, right. right? And once you take your eye off of it, you'll look up and say, well, that 30,000 you and I are talking about today uh, in four years is, is another, add another 10 or 15,000 because we didn't produce at the level. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm hearing numbers somewhere around five to 10,000 units per year of housing is what we're gonna need and it all can't be market. Right. So I would, would implore uh, all candidates to kind of think about it as housing from, for all. And right. it's no different than the employees of Metro, the employees at MDHA. I've got people that live, you know, in Clarksville that drive here every day uh, because of the affordability. Right. So we've got to figure out a way to provide a level of quality housing in our neighborhoods that support Nashville residents first. It's something I said at uh, our... Uh, recent groundbreaking at um, Casey. It's one Nashville. Right. There, there literally is one Nashville. Right. And we all have to be in this together. So we're all sacrificing together for the common good of the city. You've only been in this role for nine months. You know, not, not, that's, that's not a long time. It's not been a year yet. <clears throat> um, what are your end goals? What are some of the things that you want to check off your list in the next two years, three years, five years? What does that strategic planning look like um, for you um, as the executive director, you know, and only being in nine months, being kind of still fresh? <laughs> but a lot went a lot on your plate. I, I, um, I like how you said fresh, Jerome. I, I was told recently you're new, but you're not that new. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we have a five-year strategic plan now at MDHA, and part of that plan is to build on the things we've talked about here today. Um, the things I'd like to really check is, is a consistent development at Casey. So Casey, when it started, was a 15 to 20 year plan. We think we can finish that out in the next uh, eight to 10 years and build out Casey, the 2,400 units. We've got some more units at our CWA uh, and another site that's behind it that we need to, to develop. 
Uh, we certainly want to start Napier and Sudicum in the next uh, uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, that's not going to be an easy lift, but, but it is something that is worthy uh, of putting a lot of effort and energy on. We're, we're looking at the Edge Hill uh, Envision plan that we have there, so that plan is there. For me, I, I certainly want to check on my box uh, Andrew Jackson. And the reason Andrew Jackson, because it sits uh, strategically next to Fisk University in a neighborhood that uh, needs some investment. So Andrew Jackson is certainly on my 10-year list. Um, uh, whether that's in the next two, three, four, five years, we certainly want to get something started at Andrew Jackson. Uh, clearly, I've got Cumberland View that we've talked a little bit about here today. We've got uh, several other sites, uh, as you know, right. throughout the city. So I think part of it is we've, I've got this priority in my head. We, we, and I started with this. I'm going to kind of give you a circumvented answer. So I started with three pillars when I came to Nashville. Mm -hmm. And those three pillars were near and dear to me and really defines kind of how I looked at things. And it started with um, uh, one of my pillars was our residents and an investment in residence. That's why I've talked a lot about human services and investing in economic prosperity. We can't just be bricks and sticks anymore and just build it out. Mm -hmm. We've got to invest in the residence, the human capital piece. We've got to invest in my team. I can't lift this alone. And with 350 employees, I need all the help I can get and all the partnerships. So we've got to invest in our team. And there's things we're doing in our strategic plan, like a salary study that hasn't been done for 10, 15 years. If you don't pay people right, they don't stay. Right. So, so we're investing in our people. Development. So when I think about development, we're, we're really looking at Casey. We're looking at Napier and Sudicum. I'm looking at Edge Hill. And we're going to look at Andrew Jackson. And I'm not going to be afraid or apologetic to say Andrew Jackson needs to be as high a priority as any of those sites because North Nashville uh, uh, deserves, not needs, deserves quality housing just like everywhere else in Nashville. So those are kind of my high level uh, nine months in, but, but we're going to push very aggressively. And, and I tell folks often, didn't come to watch the paint dry. You know, I, <laughs> right. I, I'm willing to, to, to take some educated risk. Uh, I think we've got to push the envelope so that we can get on the other side. Uh, otherwise, it's all for not. Right. And, and I'm here to serve those most in need in the community. So if my voice isn't loud, if we're not pushing hard uh, to, to try to get there, then what are we doing? Right. Um, I'm going to ask, I'm, I'll have one more question and I'm, I'm going to give it to you for this last statement. Um, how does your blackness play a part in this role that you serve? Um, and when we're talking about, especially here in Nashville, where, um, you know, it's a super majority white city um, population-wise. But, but when you're talking about history and rich and what drives and what have driven the city, it's very black. Um, whether you're talking about Fitz, Meharry, TSU, talking about the Jubilee thing, there's a whole idea of Music City. Hot chick, all these things, culture is very, very black. Um, but especially when it comes to housing, when the majority of people that are being displaced um, at a disproportionate rate or don't have uh, access to affordable housing are also black. Um, how do you, as a black man, take that in and balance that into your role? And also, when you speak to community, right? Um, they see your face, they say, okay, yeah. He understands, or he knows, or has all where 
Um, how does that play into your just daily role and operations and when you boots on the ground, when you're walking through these housing um, units and things like that? So that's, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I would like to answer that race doesn't play a role, but it does. I'm mm -hmm. the sixth executive director and the first person of color to, to run MDHA. It's been in existence since 1938. Mm -hmm. So from a personal standpoint, it is a driving point that uh, uh, I have to do better, uh, have to serve better. Um, and it just gives me that every day getting up, you got to bring it. Right. You, you just can't come and work. I've got to bring it because right. there's a legacy of people that I stand on their shoulders, that I've been afforded this opportunity by the seven board members, but there's a legacy here in Nashville, mm -hmm. and there's a pretty strong civil rights legacy. And right. I know I, my last job was in Atlanta, and they have their legacy, but there's some legacy here. Right. And I just feel it's kind of almost a, a call of duty that you're being honored to be in the position. Mm -hmm. And I decided when the board uh, said I was their, their choice and uh, came to town that I came to do the job, not be afraid of the job. Right. And part of that means I have to embrace who I am. And I am a, a, a man of color. I am a man of faith. Uh, as they say, when you leave this earth, what are the things that are important? Well, for me, it's, it's being having faith. It's being a husband and a father. Those are things that are important, and I want to be able to make sure that the families that we serve have those type of kind of foundations. Mm -hmm. And if we start it with housing and we can provide services and they can be part of the economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, think about the 8,500 jobs up at Oracle. Right. Why, is, why are we not getting part of those jobs? Right. We've got to start preparing now. Right. So if I, with my uh, uh, pulpit, can push that, <laughs> why would I not push that? Right. It, it would be an honor and a pleasure considering the civil rights leaders that I'm standing on their shoulders to mm -hmm. hold me up for this day. Right. So, Dr. White, um, I want to give you the last word to um, touch on anything, go a little deeper on anything. Maybe we talked about it, maybe we didn't during this interview. But if anything you want to you want to say anything lingering that you know we just didn't hit on or we feel like we just need to go a little bit deeper on i want to give you that time to do so now and then so i don't actually have anything deeper i was was looking forward to the pizza so i, I teased <laughs> you during the break so the pizza was a big piece for me coming today what what, what 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 i what i would say is that you know we're not the old mdha and I understand our history in a short time I've been here, and I understand what we've done and what we haven't done. I know what we did when we were the Nashville Housing Authority, and there's a whole group of folks that weren't pleased with what we did. Uh, we can't do this alone. And I often tell folks, you know, it does take a village. Mm -hmm. We need communities to, to come out and work with us. We need a number of partners that we're going to be reaching to. We haven't been the best partner with all of the folks we've worked with, and I acknowledge that. After I acknowledge it, I can only apologize one time for what happened in the past and try to say to folks, I'm ready to move forward and mm -hmm. I need you to move forward with me. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a great opportunity headed in front of us. I don't look at the, the, the numbers as an obstacle. I look at it as an opportunity. But if we're going to do it, I want to do it in a comprehensive, collaborative way. And We've got to really mobilize people, and we've got to get people energized, and we've got to give people hope back. A lot of our properties, our families have lost hope, 
And we've got to get that hope back and we've got to give them opportunities to participate in the economics. Mm -hmm. And I just want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to come here with you. Uh, this has been a great forum. I um, was a little apprehensive and I was practice all weekend to figure out the pizza eating. <laughs> But, but I'm glad to be here uh, with you and look forward to serving the greater community. Dr. White is not going to let me get away from this pizza. So I'm a, I'm a 312, I'm coming straight to you. We're we going to get Dr. White this pizza. We, gonna have, we might have to get the whole 350-person staff pizza for, for them to forgive me for this. But um, um, thank you, Dr. White. I appreciate your time. I appreciate uh, your genuineness, your honesty, and just um, in, your, in your presence. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to what, what you and your team do, MDHA, uh, for housing here in Nashville, you know, a city where I was born and raised in um, and want to continue to live in and want to one day be able to get a house <laughs> and all of those things. And so um, just I just appreciate you for your 20-plus years of work in this sector as well. Um, and just want to give you your uh, bouquet of flowers right now while you can still smell them. Um, and just from black man to black man as well, you know, just thank you for your work in to serve community and the capacity that you do. Um, and I look forward to you coming back and having pizza with me, uh, deep dish pizza. It won't be Connecticut, New Haven pizza, but it'll be, you know, 312 Chicago style pizza. Or we might have to get Slim Hugs. I don't know. We can, we can, y'all let you pick. We'll, okay. we'll figure it out. Okay. But I thank you again for your time and uh, this opportunity and looking forward to what y'all do for Nashville and housing. Thank you.